It's the NPR Politics Podcast here with a special episode to talk about the news this weekend that Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia has died. He was 79 years old, and his sudden death has massive ramifications for politics and policy this election year. I'm Tamara Keith, White House correspondent for NPR. I'm Carrie Johnson, NPR's justice correspondent. I'm Ron Elving, editor and correspondent. And on the line with us is Nina Totenberg, NPR's legal affairs correspondent. Nina, we're so glad you could dial in for this. Me too. Nina, you know Antonin Scalia. You know Justice Scalia. Um, You have reported on him since he started in the court in 1986. You know his colleagues. What's your reaction to his death? Stupefaction. I mean, he was very well and hearty as far as anybody could see, both physically and mentally. And while there was a lot of jabber-jabber in the press corps about should Justice Ginsburg, who's three years older, retire, nobody thought for a minute that he was retiring, much less just going to vanish from the earth. And he is such an enormous presence as a human being as well as a justice that the idea of having a Supreme Court without Nino Scalia Something that you imagined intellectually would happen someday, but it's really hard to get your arms around. Nina, can you tell me about when you first met Justice Scalia? I think I first met him actually when he was an assistant attorney general. But my first recollection, really vivid recollection, was I took him to a White House correspondence dinner when he was on the Court of Appeals. And we made something of an act together, Nina and Nino. And he was my friend from that night on. We had a wonderful time together. He has a mar- had a marvelous sense of humor, even though he could be very tough and, you know, would get very angry sometimes at the press corps, and he would vent to me about that. He had a very gentle side as well, a kind side. Um, when his son-in-law died not that long ago, a few years ago, I... Uh, my husband and I went to the wake, and he was just desolate. I mean, he, was, he wept on my shoulder when I gave him a hug. So to have this sort of public view of him as this um, uncompromising bully boy, in a way, was not representative of who he was. And I think that's why Justice Ginsburg, from the other end of the court, the liberal end of the court, who'd known him for years and years, so valued their friendship. They like to fight things out in good spirit, in fair spirit, not the way we see debates these days on television. These were substantive debates these two had. Last year, I interviewed them both on stage um, for the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, and they came to play. There were a lot of laughs. They really did a lot of jokes at each other's expenses and also to compliment each other. But they really fought it out on a lot of important issues right there in front of an audience. Nina, this notion that Scalia was among the most vital on the court or on the bench generally, no matter what his chronological age was. That's true. And, you know, he changed the way the court operated. And when he became a justice, the whole way oral argument took place was a relatively sleepy affair with lawyers allowed to speak for many minutes on end without being interrupted. And now they're lucky if they get 30 seconds without being interrupted. (laughs) And he led the charge on that. When he came on the court, that began to change. And then other justices said, well, we can't just let him just sort of hog the time. We better get our act together and ask questions, too. And now it's, you know, a pretty wild ride. It's a real rat-a-tat-tat-tat back and forth. Right. And he has how many grandkids or had how many grandkids? 
I don't remember the number of grandchildren. He has nine children, so you do the math. One of them's a priest, and all the rest have children. (laughs) (laughs) Ron, what are your thoughts? One of the things that Antony Scalia will be remembered for is being, in a sense, to the judiciary what Ronald Reagan was to the rest of the political system. The president who appointed Scalia, of course, was Reagan. Reagan first put him on a circuit court and then, of course, promoted him to be a Supreme Court justice in 1986. And the similarity between the two was that they both spoke for a conservative movement that had felt itself to be long in the wilderness in the period of time after FDR, after the 60s. They felt that they had been almost banished from the power structure of America and to some degree from the intellectual ferment or the intellectual dominant ideas of academia. And they were both very much rebels against that. Uh, Ronald Reagan from outside of those systems and Scalia from very much inside the University of Chicago where he taught, uh, became kind of a bastion for a certain kind of what they sometimes called textualism, where you look at the original text of whatever the document is in terms of itself and not in terms of some other sort of grand context or some sort of liberal notion of how it might evolve. That was a word that Antonin Scalia did not much care for, that word evolve. At one time, he actually made reference to believing in the Constitution as a document that didn't evolve, that wasn't a living document, as some people call it, and actually at one point said, I serve a dead Constitution, which I think was just said to be a kind of provocative remark, but to illustrate what originalism, original intent of the Constitution meant to him. And there is this whole group of jurists and lawyers and politicians who have largely taken their inspiration from him and from a group that he was instrumental in expanding called the Federalist Society. Can we talk about um, the language that he uses in some of his decisions? Um, It just strikes me as, um, is colorful the right word? Argle bargle? Applesauce? (laughs) It was vivid in his analogies, in his language, as you said, argle bargle, applesauce. Those were words that he used to describe the same-sex marriage opinion with which he ferociously disagreed. And there were people in recent years who thought maybe he went over the line, but he was by far, I think by most people's estimates, the best writer on the court. I once asked Paul Clement, who was then the Solicitor General and who had been a law clerk to Justice Scalia, and Scalia never made any bones about the fact that he didn't write the first draft of any opinion, that his law clerks wrote the first draft. And I said to him, so after you gave it to him, what came out of his word processor or typewriter, was it significantly different? And and Clement said to me, it bore no relation to it whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it was just to get a structure down, and then he would put his own inimitable stamp on it. So let's move to the politics of this, which are mighty complicated. Normally the way it works is a vacancy opens up, typically through retirement rather than death. A vacancy opens up. And then the next thing that happens is that the president nominates a replacement. Then the Senate takes that up. Uh, The Judiciary Committee holds a hearing. Then the full Senate would vote. Um, It's going to be much more complicated than that this time around. Uh, Here was President Obama last night talking about his next steps. I plan to fulfill my constitutional responsibilities to nominate a successor in due time 
There will be plenty of time for me to do so and for the Senate to fulfill its responsibility to give that person a fair hearing and a timely vote. These are responsibilities that I take seriously, as should everyone. They're bigger than any one party. They are about our democracy. So, Ron, that was uh, greeted with uh, open arms, right? <laughs> Hoots of derision would probably be a better way to put it. Uh, the president is clearly trying to put it on the Senate and say it is their responsibility to advise and consent in the nomination and that they need to give it a look, that they need to process it. What we heard from the Republicans in their debate just, just minutes, it seemed, after we had confirmation of Scalia's death was that they did not want Barack Obama to even send a name. Don't even ask us to consider this. You should just step back and let the next president decide. The Senate needs to stand strong and say, we're not going to give up the U.S. Supreme Court for a generation by allowing Barack Obama to make one more liberal appointee. And so and I believe uh, the president should not move forward. I do not believe the president should appoint someone. It's called delay, delay, delay. All the people on stage said, nope, no more Barack Obama nominees. We should have the next president. And of course, in the minds of these six men, that next president should be himself, name the next justice of the Supreme Court. I want to move on to talk about why this is just such a big deal for the court, for its future, and both the short term and the long term. And in the short term, Nina, it changes the balance of, of the court. Yes, and that's largely because I cannot recall a time in my coverage of the court, which is many decades, in which the court is so divided between conservatives and liberals. So if you imagine that you have a case, whether it involves abortion or immigration or whatever, some big national issue, and there are a half dozen of them before the court this term, union power, affirmative action. Let's just say that in a particular case, the vote was five to four with the five conservatives, including Justice Kennedy, who's sort of a swing voter, lining up on one side and the four liberals on the other. Well, now there aren't five conservatives. There are only four. So if you end up with a 4-4 tie, that means that whatever the lower court decision held, that stands for the moment, but it has no value nationally and no value in terms of the future. Well, and this means a 4-4 Supreme Court until when, question mark? Because if the Senate is not going to feel an obligation to advise and consent in the president's nomination, and the president, of course, has already said he intends to send a nominee to Capitol Hill, if the Senate is not going to respond to that in the usual manner, then you are essentially saying not only that these four to four situations will obtain, as Nina has described, for the current court term, but all of next term. Because they start in October and they run through into June, there is hardly any circumstance one can imagine in which someone could be added to the court in time to be a significant part of the next Supreme Court term. And you know who'd be most unhappy about this? Antonin Scalia. He would be really sad to know that his death made the Supreme Court into such a political football. Now, I know there are lots of people who thought he was partisan in his opinions. He didn't think he was partisan. He thought he was correct. <laughs> and, and, and what he certainly thought was that the court should stand apart from politics. It's one of the reasons he never went to State of the Union addresses in, in modern times. He thought, just don't get involved in politics at all. And, <laughs> and so 
he would be, this is probably the worst outcome of his death in terms of the way he would see it. Are there any um, cases that had already been heard that maybe have already been decided, but we just don't know the result that um, Justice Scalia may have been involved in that would stand? No. That's right. That's how I understand it, too. Yeah. They've already decided a case, taken a vote, and now Scalia has died. His vote does not count, and therefore it may change the outcome of the case entirely. They're back to square one. They're back to square one. Unless it was an over, let's say it was a seven to two vote or a six to three vote, and his vote is not material, and he wasn't writing the opinion, then of course they can go ahead. But if his vote is critical in any respect, then it does make a difference. And in, because the court is on these big, most controversial issues, so divided, it likely was very significant in these cases. And, Nina, that means that um, the remaining justices could ask the parties to come back and argue something all over again, right? They could ask them to come back next year, but given what's happened this week already in terms of the political storm over whether there will be a replacement for Scalia anytime soon, it would be a little bit foolish to say to people, well, come back in October or November and re-argue this the court, like everybody else, probably hasn't figured out how it's going to handle all of this. I would imagine they're set to meet on Friday to discuss cases and to vote. And I would imagine in the next week or two, there's going to be a lot of discussion among the justices. How are we going to handle this? What do we do with these cases that have, where the outcome may have changed? Is there a minimal ground we can get rid of this on, that somebody doesn't have standing uh, to be here at all? Could we dismiss it as what they call improvidently granted? How are they going to handle these? They can't just say, well, we're going to re-argue it next term, because there's no guarantee anybody's going to be confirmed by the end of next term. You know, in terms of how long it takes to get somebody confirmed, in a general sense, this is obviously an extreme example for the reasons we've just been talking about. The best source of data on this is the Congressional Research Service, which is nonpartisan. And they point out that Justice Kagan, Elena Kagan, who was the most recently confirmed justice in 2010, took about 87 calendar days between her nomination and a final vote. A couple of more problematic nominees, Clarence Thomas, waited 99 days. And uh, Robert Bork, who was eventually voted down in 1987, took 108 days. We may be in for some history making here, though, in the months ahead. Carrie, I want to talk about precedent here. Uh, In the Republican debate last night, there was a discussion of, well, in an election year, you just don't you don't approve a nominee. But there was one nominee that became a Supreme Court justice in an election year. That was Justice Kennedy. Can we run through that history and and try to sort through it a little bit? Senator Charles Grassley, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee and a Republican from Iowa, whose committee would vet and oversee this nomination, sent out a statement saying that it's been 80 years since the Senate confirmed a Supreme Court nominee in an election year, but presented with the evidence of Justice Kennedy's overwhelming confirmation in 1988, which was an election year. Senator Grassley then amended his statement to point out that Kennedy was nominated in 87 and not confirmed until 88. Carrie, you've been looking, beginning to look at who might be a nominee from President Obama. Um, 
What does the list look like? So President Obama so far over the course of the last seven years has um, prized diversity in his nominees. He's put more women on the bench, more minorities. And at the top of the shortlist that we've imagined, no one in the White House is showing us, is a guy named Sri Srinivasan. He's currently a member of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, who won confirmation overwhelmingly in 2013. He's also a, a bit of a darling. And in an indication of how many people are paying attention to this now, Tam, Mindy Kaling, the star of The Office and The Mindy Project, has just tweeted today a uh, happy Valentine's Day message to Judge Sri Srinivasan. I don't know whether that means anything or not, but boy, oh boy. Wow. So. I'm sure she does that every year, actually. I'm sure she does. Yeah, he's he's been getting just a little bit of attention. Is there anyone else on that list? Paul Watford on the Ninth Circuit and Jackie Wen on the Ninth Circuit, who would be the first Asian-American. Paul Watford is African-American. If you want to look at this in completely political terms, cold, hard-eyed political terms. If you were thinking about the Democratic Party, you would look at this election and say, we have a turnout problem. Who do we need to turn out? And if we had an African-American like Paul Watford, who's a very distinguished and young, who would be on the court a long time, that might be the way to go. That would excite the African-American community to have someone other than Clarence Thomas. So that would be a thought, and Jackie Wen would be the first Asian-American on the court. Sri Srinivasan would be the first Indian-American on the court. These are all things that must be going through the heads of the calculators at the White House. And let me point out that the filibuster still exists, at least the possibility of the filibuster still exists for Supreme Court nominations. So we need 60 votes in order to make something happen in the Senate. Which is to say the odds of something happening are are greatly reduced. Well, they're they're probably near zero at this point because we have the opposition of so many Republicans to even having the president name somebody. But the president will name somebody. There may actually be some kind of process. And if it were to come to a vote, the bar is almost impossibly high. Nina, can I ask you quickly, what about Merrick Garland? Is he, in his now mid-60s, considered too old? He's 63, and he was the runner-up a couple of times. Orrin Hatch kept wanting Garland to be appointed. When Sonia Sotomayor was named and when Elena Kagan was named, he was rooting for Garland. But we don't live in a time when Republicans and Democrats each give up something they want in order to get a sort of a compromise nominee. So although he's a person of great achievement, oversaw the investigation of the Oklahoma City bombing when he was in the Justice Department, was a prosecutor all his life and is now the chief judge of the D.C. Court of Appeals, I think that that's probably unlikely because you have to look ahead and say that, all right, if the nomination that President Obama makes is unsuccessful, it's still likely that if a Democrat is elected president, that that individual may get renominated to the position. What about Patricia Millette? She's also on the D.C. Circuit, again, uh, I think in her early 50s, often mentioned as a possibility, sort of a moderate Democrat husband, I think, was in the military, if he isn't still in the military. You know, again, (laughs) this is a very live possibility. But getting through, actually through, unless something very dramatic changes, I just don't see that until there's a new president. And if there were a new president who's a Democrat, then she, if she'd been nominated, would very possibly, likely, whatever, get renominated. Okay, so... 
given the political situation as it is right now, how ugly could this get? Could we have a, a constitutional crisis at some point? It depends on what you mean by constitutional crisis. It seems quite possible that the Senate will receive a name from President Obama and either decline to have hearings or have hearings in a sort of perfunctory way and simply reject the nominee. There's every possibility they would do that. But they might also stick to their guns and say, we're not going to even consider anyone. I think that would, in some people's minds, constitute a constitutional crisis. Uh, we've already heard from the Republicans that they're characterizing this as giving the American people a chance to weigh in in the process by making this an issue not only in the presidential election in November, but also in the Senate election, which will determine whether or not the Republicans retain that uh, control that they have now with 54 votes. I don't think that we should underestimate the heated rhetoric we are about to hear on these issues, in part because it's something that could really help mobilize the Republican base of voters. It could help change, to some extent, uh, the leaderboard in the Republican uh, Party. And there are huge numbers of interest groups, or maybe small numbers of interest groups, and a huge amount of money that may be flooded into the system on this issue alone, because the Supreme Court is so important and it controls so much in this country. I guess I would add here that traditionally, having covered many presidential elections when people said, oh, well, the Supreme Court's really going to be an issue this year, and then it wasn't. This time, it's unclear to me whether it will continue to be the way it's always been, uh, whether this is actually a great issue for the Democrats in which they can portray the Republicans as obstructionists and really use it in all these Senate campaigns. But as Kerry said, I cannot imagine the amount of money that is going to be raised on this issue for Senate campaigns. It's going to be obscene. Well, and the balance of power of the Supreme Court was all very abstract until about 24 hours ago. And now exactly. it is very real and the stakes are incredibly high. That's right. It's exactly. always an issue. You, you say people always say the Supreme Court is going to be an issue. And yes, it always is an issue. But now it's going to be salient and it's probably going to have a face. It's going to have the face of whomever Barack Obama nominates and the Senate rejects. All right. Well, I think we're going to leave it there for this episode. Thanks to all of you for listening, for rating the podcast on iTunes, and for your questions on Twitter and via email. Please keep them coming. I'm Tamara Keith, NPR White House correspondent. I'm Carrie Johnson, NPR's justice correspondent. I'm Ron Elving, editor and correspondent. And I'm legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Thanks for joining us, Nina. And uh, we'll be back with the next episode of the NPR Politics Podcast sometime next week.